So the Southern Baptist Convention released a report last week on, um, on the Sexual Abuse Task Force. It was a 288-page report delineating several things. Uh, John Lee and I were at the convention last year. We were among the many, the overwhelming majority that voted to make sure that this um, third-party independent study from Guidepost Solutions would be the ones to conduct this and that um, the executive committee would not have any control over the investigation, that they would waive attorney-client privilege to give full disclosure to all information they had so that we could get a good, accurate report of what's going on. Now in that, I'm just gonna pull up here the article. So um, I sent an email to, you, to the church family, so you might have seen it. Um, let me see here. The one with the, with the frequently asked questions about the task force, did you guys get to look at that? How many of you guys got to read that uh, just basic summary? Okay. Um, let me, thank you. So here is the uh, in independent investigation from Guidepost Solutions. It's a 288-page one, and there's a few different appendices as well. But um, let me summarize for you guys um, what happened. Now, I'm, I'm speaking primarily to church members. If you're not a member of our church, thank you again for being here. But I'm assuming a few things, what the Southern Baptist Convention is. I'm not going to start explaining all those different things right now. I'm just going to get straight to kind of the issue, and then we could just bring out more things in the Q&A as um, some of your questions brought up some polity-type stuff. Um, so we, we um, commissioned... Uh, a report to investigate a few different things. There were five areas to investigate, okay? Here are the five areas. Number one, allegations of abuse by executive committee staff and members. Was there any abuse there? And um, the report found that at least one, uh, there's credible evidence that a former SBC president, Johnny Hunt, from 2008 to 2010 had sexually assaulted the wife of an SBC pastor. That was what was found in the report for that first area. The second area is a mishandling of abuse allegations and mistreatment of victims. And so the report had shown that there have been, every time there's, or not every time, but often when there's an allegation or a report, they were mishandled, they were stonewalled, um, they stalled getting back, they said, hey, don't respond to the email, don't respond to the person, just let things die down. So oftentimes when there was a credible report or a report worth thinking through, um, they often just mishandled it and um, did not act at all. In many ways, just kind of hoped I'm not, I'm not sure if hope that would go away, but they were mostly concerned about the legal liability it would cause for the convention. And for those of you, John, Peter, specifically Ben and others, if you say, if I say anything that's missed, just raise your hand or grab a mic and feel free to correct me as I'm just trying to summarize what's going on here. So there's mishandling of the abuse allegations and mistreatment of the victims. And when, I, when we say mistreatment, what we're saying is like, they either disparaged them, dismissed them, said that, oh, they just want attention, they're professional victims, uh, they just want to burn down the whole SBC as if that was the motives. They're impugning the motives of, the, of those who are reporting abuse and the those who are advocating for them, okay? So that was the second area. The third area was a pattern of intimidation of victims or advocates. And um, I, I think I just kind of bled the second one, the third one. That was where they would intimidate them or dismiss them and say comments um, to really just uh, tell them basically to, to go away, um, essentially, or just 
this, this is not our problem to, to solve. There are other ways and channels of doing that. That's not our job. That's not the executive committee's job. So uh, look elsewhere is maybe a fair way of saying that one. And then the last one was, um, uh, have, have they been resistant to sexual abuse reform initiatives? And the answer to that, again, is yes, um, as they have, have have people suggested reforms, even the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, a conference, um, J.D. Greer, one of the presidents who kept on pushing and trying to make this more public. There was resistance to sexual abuse reform initiatives, at least on handling that on the executive committee level. So this is not to say that they were abusing. It's when the report, the main thing is when the reports were coming in and saying, hey, this person was a pastor at this SBC church, and now they went to that church, and they don't know who to call, so they called the executive committee. Um, the executive committee wouldn't move on any of that information. They would just say, oh, that's not, the, the, in our polity, every church is autonomous, every entity is autonomous, and uh, we don't want legal liability by getting involved. And that's kind of what kept ha happening over the years. So you can imagine over the years, you're just allowing these things to happen. People are getting frustrated, not only frustrated, but hurt and feeling violated and discouraged. And already, they're already violated from the abuse. And now they, um, you know, they're just, now they're looked at as a problem in the SBC. So that thing is multiplying on them, as well as the perpetrators and predators who are moving around without um, any, re without the resistance that would have happened if someone would have taken some, some actions. So that's the report, okay? So, and uh, I think at least for, for the leaders of our church, um, for those, I think, it's, I think it would be worth your time to read through the whole thing. Not because you're gonna hear different things than what I said, but uh, especially for me and for the leaders, like we need to feel the weight of it. And so to, to feel the weight of it, just reading a summary doesn't really do justice. Because even the 288 page report is not the whole thing. It's just, they're trying to give you a summary of their findings in 300 pages, but there's more than that. So um, I would just suggest not only us, but any any leaders of churches who are in the SBC, they should take the time to read it and sit with it and sit on it. So that's the report. Um, what I want to do now is I want to um, share some thoughts on how to just a basic sketch. I did send you guys a longer article. I don't want to go through the whole thing here, but I want to give a basic sketch of how, like some, some kind of thoughts and ways to process moving forward and how to, how to work through this. And then I want to open our time for Q&A. Um, not just with me, other people can answer as well. There's other pastors here. Other people can, can chime in. But I want to facilitate a conversation on that as a church family. And then I want us to spend some time in prayer. Uh, lamenting, repenting if necessary, praying, interceding, um, pleading to God for mercy and grace for all kinds of categories of different people, predators, uh, the victims, especially survivors, advocates. Um, yeah, there's just, I could start thinking of all kinds of categories of people to be praying for so we could just spend some time in prayer at the end. All right, so um, that's, the, that's the report. Um, I wanna suggest that four tracks for us to think about in processing it and it will take time to process just emotionally and mentally and spiritually, but four kind of tracks to kind of get your bearings. One would be righteous anger. The second one would be self-examination. A third one would be lament and mourning. And the fourth one would be um, action or change, okay? So there are four different things and you don't have to do it in order. It's just, these are four things and you could, so righteous anger, there should be righteous anger at sin. There should be, um, self-examination, there should be mourning, and then there should be um, 
action and change and not just sitting and being content with the status quo. Okay? So let me just, uh, if you have a Bible, let's go to a few different Bible passages. So Ephesians 4, 25 and 26, turn there. Ephesians 4, 25 and 26. I'm sorry, 26 and 27. So Ephesians 4, 26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. An opportunity. So let's start with the first command. There's a few commands in verse 26, but what's the very first command of verse 26? Be angry. What's the second command? Do not sin, okay? And it's in that order intentionally. So be angry first and do not sin. So the command here is to not be angry. Or the command is not to not be angry. So it's not, um, Paul's saying, don't be angry or don't be sinfully angry. That's not what he's saying. The command is be angry. In other words, there's a time and place. It is necessary for a godly Christian in maturity, in spiritual maturity, to be angry. We should be angry at sin. Romans 12, 9 says, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good or detest what is evil. And the reason we should be angry at sin is because God is angry at sin. God hates sin. If someone were to uh, violate someone I love, if you take one of my children, you know, a young child, and, and they were violating my child, and I just thought, oh, I got to be patient like God. Uh, just forgive and forget. That would not be godly. That would be ungodly. There is a place for righteous, holy anger. And it's not just there's a place for it. There's a command to do it, to be angry. Okay? So if with these credible reports that are coming out, there is a place for righteous anger. And God, I would say that one of the ways of processing it, one of the four at least, and there's more, but at least four major planks, one is to be righteously angry. It's right to be angry, to be angry at sin, to be angry at the sinners, to be angry that this happened, and, and so, so that is a right emotion. Um, I, I wrote down in the article, I did email it to you guys again with, a, with an edit here, with a few edits on it. But um, it, so God is angry at sin. God hates sin. And so us being angry in a godly way is being like God. And so notice here it says, be angry. Go back to the verse. Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry and what? And do not sin. So in other words, it's not just saying, it's not a license to just be angry and sinfully angry. So the first command is to be angry, but right alongside that is be angry in a non-sinful way. So it's not don't be sinfully angry, it's be angry in a non-sinful way. Okay, be angry and do not sin. In other words, how do you be angry and not sin? The basic way I would summarize it is if we're angry primarily for self-centered, self-exalting reasons, well, then that would be sinful. If we're angry because God was sinned against, God was belittled, God was disobeyed, and God's image bearers were violated and hurt, and that dishonors God by dishonoring and violating God's image bearers, that is a righteous location or source for the anger, okay? So oftentimes we're sinfully angry, and we're sinfully angry because I didn't get my way, I didn't get my preference, and I wanted you to do this, and you didn't do that, and not that God wants you to do that, it's just my thing that I wanted you to do, you didn't do it that way, and so I get angry. That's sinful anger, okay? So we're talking about be righteously angry, naming, namely, be, be angry triggered by God being violated and God being violated directly and God being violated by God's image bearers 
being violated and being angry for their sake and for God's glory, not for your own self-centered initiatives or desires. That's not the only way to not sin, though. There's more commands. So be angry, be God-centered in your angerness, not self-centered. But then move on, verse 26. There's one more command here, or two more commands. But they're really the same thing. They overlap. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So in other words, your anger should be how long? Less than a day. Okay, now this is not technically giving you the hours, right? It's like, okay, once I go over this many hours, then I'm, then I'm sinning. But the point is that there should be a, there's a short time limit on righteous anger. You can't just live in the zone of righteous anger. If you do, that righteous anger becomes unrighteous anger. When it is elongated and goes too long, it spoils and it actually rots and starts to rot your soul and makes you sin against God, okay? So there's a place for righteous anger. There is a command to be righteously angry. It must be God-centered and it must be um, expiring. It must have a time limit. It must be within a certain time. It must not just be elongated and unchecked, okay? Why? Because of the next command. Verse 27, what's the command there? So don't let the sun go down in your anger and what? Don't give the devil an opportunity. The devil gets an opportunity through selfish anger, through passively not being angry, because he just lets sin go, like, right? Like when these reports came in, they should have been righteously angry and took action, but they weren't righteously angry. They're trying to just try to stay away from it perhaps. And because of that, um, the devil has an opportunity to just keep running, uh, keep allowing people to abuse others. So that gives an opportunity. And then when you let your righteous anger go too long, the devil now has, a, has an opportunity in your life to take that spoiled, elongated anger and use it to exploit you and cause you to sin in, in ways. So the command here, there's a, there's a thin layer here of like, there's a righteous path and there's all these unrighteous paths right behind it or beside it. But the righteous path is righteous, holy, God-centered, temporary anger. Okay? And that's where, that, that can be and ought to be one of the responses you feel towards uh, reports of mishandling sexual abuse reports and mistreating victims and their advocates and intimidating them. Okay, so how do we do righteous anger well? Well, there's a second, there's another necessary component to doing righteous anger well, which leads to the second lane. So one is righteous anger. The second one is self-examination. Okay, self-examination. One of the ways to um, ruin righteous anger quickly is through self-righteousness, okay? Self-righteousness is another pitfall that we want to avoid. How do you avoid self-righteousness? Do you guys have any ideas how to avoid self-righteousness? When you're tempted or feeling self-righteous, how do you fight self-righteousness? Any of you guys want to say out loud some ways to do that? Think about our own sin, right? Anything else? No, okay, think about our own sin. That, yeah, so think about your own sin, confess your sin, uh, maybe reflect on God's holiness in light of who you are so that you feel small. Because what, happen, what, what happens in self-righteousness? Self-righteousness is a sin that comes uh, not in isolation, not just you thinking about you and God. It comes in you comparing yourself to somebody else, right? So you have to put someone else who's sinning beside you and then you have to look down on them. And so you got to elevate yourself by looking down on the person who sinned and fell, and that makes you self-righteous and elevates yourself above them. 
Now, that's not to say that you have committed the same sin they committed. So we're not saying we've all done these sins. So if you see someone who abuses someone, that's not to say you're, that you've abused someone too. But it is to say that you need to, you can still be self-righteous in the way you look down on another sinner. So we want to fight against that. And um, you're right, sister, in terms of one way to do that is to reflect on your own sin. So the, the passage I'm thinking about here is Matthew 7, 1 through 5. What I've often called the secret sauce to relationships. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Don't judge. You guys are familiar with this. Don't judge so that you won't be judged. Here we are with righteous anger wanting to judge sinners. And there's some, right, there's some rightness there. But don't judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard w with which you judge others. And you'll be measured by the same measure you use. So we want to be judged right, rightly. Okay, but not self-righteously by others. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the what? The beam of wood or the log in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrites. First, this is the way you guard against self-righteousness. First, take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. So we should be angry about all kinds of splinters in brothers' eyes who are hurting all kinds of people and dishonoring God. But what Jesus is saying is the way you guard against self-righteousness and hypocrisy is by first looking at the log in your own eye. Now, the log in your eye, what's bigger, a log or a splinter? A log is, right? A beam is bigger than a splinter. So in Jesus, when Jesus is speaking here, um, whose sin is bigger, yours or theirs? Given Jesus' beam and splinter analogy here. Our own, right? Our sin is bigger than those. Now, does that mean that our sin is always objectively bigger than someone else's sin? Yes or no? No, right? No. What Jesus, and, but in perspective, when you have a, a little, when you have something in your eye, it should be big. That's your first priority. That's the biggest concern for you. That's your first priority is to deal with your own sin. Once you repent and you feel broken and appropriately feeling the weight of your own sin in light of God's holiness, now you're, now you're in a position of, you're, 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 you, you can't be self-righteous at that point because you've admitted your own log. You're, you're humbled before God. Now you're humbly able to judge, rebuke, be angry, and call somebody out in a way where, um, where you're not doing it in a self-righteous, hypocritical way. Have you ever been stumbled, or not stumbled, stumped by someone when, when you've sinned and you call someone out on their sin and they say, well, what about you? And you're like, oh, they're right. I got nothing. So you're like, okay, I can't say anything. Have you guys ever been stumped by that before? Um, this is the way out. So if I, if I say to one of you brothers or sisters, hey, you're sinning in this way, and then you say, hey, well, what about you, PJ? You sin in the same way, and you're right, and I haven't repented, what should I do in that situation? Yeah, I shouldn't say, well, you did too. I should be like, you know what? I didn't notice that. Thank you for pointing that out. Let me just kind of get away with it. Let me, can you fill out what my sin is? Fill it out, get all of it, and say, you know what? I need to do business with God here. I need to humble myself before God and repent. Thank you for sharing that with me. I'll get back to your splinter later, but thank you for pointing out the beam in my eye. Let me just handle that right now. So take some time to repent and then come back to the brother or sister and say, okay, thank you for pointing that out. Now let's resume our conversation about your splinter. Does that make sense? So that's a way to not be stumped because you might be hypocritical. So the way out of it is not to say, I didn't do it or to ignore it. It's to say, okay, let me do business. Take the, the splinter or the, the beam of wood out of my eye first and then the splinter out of my brother or sister's eye. So all that to say, when we're, when we're looking at a sexual abuse task force report like this, there's a place, there's a temptation towards self-righteousness. And the way out of that is to examine ourselves, 
look at the sin in our own eyes. And one other way to do it is to look at their sin, look at the sins of others as a mirror of your own sin. So if, if you're rebuking someone, well, the first thing you should do when you see someone who, who makes you angry about something sinful is to see them, is to see yourself in them. Like, man, they're mirroring, like, they're just reflecting how I am in this way of my life and in that way in my life. If you do that as your first knee-jerk reaction when you see someone else sinning, that will appropriately humble you to now to, to enable you to minister to people, okay? So whenever you see people sinning, look at it, in a sense, as a mirror reflection of the, the sins of your own heart. Then, then like, be freshly humbled again, and then feel free to move forward in ministering to them. Okay, so the, the, um, there's more verses on that, but that's just, um, when you look at some of the sins here, that, that's, that's something that you should do is check yourself, examine yourself, remove logs from your own eye, and then um, remove beams from your brother or sister's eye. Now, applying it here, we should also, so when I did this with a report, it's not just me thinking about my own sin, I did think about that, but then I'm also thinking about, well, what about BBC? So yes, the SBC has a problem, the executive committee did something, but what about our church? Are our process, processes off? Does Ben and me and Peter and John, are we holding each other accountable? Do other members hold us accountable? Are we open to people? Are we hiding things in our own lives? Are we mishandling things and justifying it by legal liability or some other excuse that's causing us to not deal rightly and humbly and effectively with legitimate reports or other, other concerns of the church? That has to be asked that has to be asked, and we need to, if we're gonna really look at ourselves and remove logs from our own eye before we, we look elsewhere, we need to ask not just the question about ourselves personally, but we gotta ask about our church family. The leaders gotta ask about the pastor council. The church has to ask about the pastor council. We gotta ask about BBC as a whole. What about our church's culture? Are we also harboring things like this that we need to repent of as a church in our own lives as a church family? All right, so check yourself, check your church, um, but then after that, mourn and lament. Okay, the next one is mourn and lament. And to, to think through this one just very briefly, um, let's go to Psalm 13. Psalm 13. So we should be angry at, that per, at their sin. We should name that sin. We should be angry about that sin. Um, we should mourn and lament over the sin. So Psalm 13 Actually, before I read Psalm 13, well, actually, no, let me, let me break down what a lament looks like in Psalm 13. Then I want to read Psalm 10, because I think Psalm 10 is a fitting psalm to just read in light of the current report. But let's look at Psalm 13. So in Psalm 13, we have here um, a lament, and it gives us a helpful outline for how to lament. Do you guys remember the acronym for how to lament? Anyone here remember it? Say it out loud if you remember it. TCAT. Anyone remember TCAT? What does TCAT stand for? Turn. T is turn to God. What is C? Complain to God. A, ask God. And then the last T is trust God. Okay. And let's look at that here. The four elements here in Psalm 13. Okay. This is from Mark Vrogop's um, outline here of Psalm 13 as an illustration of, <coughs> excuse me, of, um, of a lament. So number one, turn to God. Look at verse one. So if you're, if you're feeling brokenness, your own sin or the sins of others, and it's a broken situation, how do you lament to God? By the way, let me just say this. When you have a broken situation, there's two things you can do. You can run to God or you can run away from God and isolate yourself from God. Lament is the way to take your brokenness and pain and pressure and go to God. 
That's your path to God is lament. So you need to learn how to lament in your Christian life. It's a very important skill uh, for you to know for your own Christian growth and ministry, okay? So how do you lament? Number one, turn to God. Look at Psalm 13:1. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Here he's going to God and choosing to talk to God about his complaint. So you turn to God. Then he, you bring your complaint. The C is complaint. T-cat, complain. Every lament has a feature of complaint. So look at verse 2. How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? Here he's complaining about anxiety. Anxiety that's dominating his life. He's complaining about it. He's bringing that complaint to God. He feels like the enemy is dominating him as well and conquering him. And so he brings his complaint to God. More than just rehearsing, more than a sinful rehearsing of our anger, um, Mark Rogop says, biblical lament humbly and honestly identifies the pain, questions, um, questions and frustrations, uh, bring, identifies the pain, questions and frustrations raging in our soul. So feel free to complain to God. And let me just encourage you with this. You're like, but isn't it sinful if, I, if I'm mad at God? Isn't it sinful to complain to God? Answer yes or no. If you're mad at, if you're sinfully angry at God, is it sinful to, to uh, complain to God? Yes or no? Yes. So should you complain to God? Yes or no? Yes. So you should sin? <laughs> this is important. Yeah. So, so what do you, if it's, if it's, if you're sinfully angry at God and it's sinful to cl complain to God, we're telling you to complain to God. Now, why? Because, well, you expressing it out loud is not, it's not you beginning to complain. It's you actually voicing the actual sinful complaint already in your heart. So in other words, does God already know your heart? He already knows, right? God already knows if you're sinfully angry at him. God already knows if you're being selfish and self-centered and petty. So there's no use in not telling God that. It actually helps you. God is actually giving you models here to help you. God is not hurting and saying, oh, I need help because I'm too weak. God is full and omnipotent and strong and in control. And, you know, so God is whole. He's not, he's not panicking and out of control in any way. He's not vulnerable. Why does he tell us to complain? Because we need to actually say out loud what we're feeling. We're already feeling, if we're already feeling uh, miserable and rotten and sinful and selfish, you saying it doesn't add to the sin. It's just expressing the sin that's already there, Okay. So should you express your complaints to God, even if it's sinful? Yes, he already knows anyways. Yes, complain to God. Question God. Cry out to God. Bring it to God. He already knows it. Okay, so then from there, bring God your complaint. And then in verses 3 and 4, ask, in TCAT, the next is ask. Ask boldly for help. Look at what he says in verses 3 and 4. Consider me and answer Yahweh, my God, restore brightness to my eyes. Otherwise, I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have triumphed over him, and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. So he asks for God's help. He asks for strength. He asks for deliverance. He asks for the thing to end. He asks for restoration. Brothers and sisters, when you come to God, ask God Okay, I know this sounds basic, but I need to say it because some of you don't do this because your theology is almost too good. Ask God for what you want. You hear me? Ask God for what 
you want. Right? But aren't I supposed to pray according to God's will? Yes. I prayed this earlier for one, for, I think for Jim in our morning gathering. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the what? The desires of what? Your of your heart. Pray what you want. Now, try to delight yourself in the Lord, but sometimes we're so wanting to be in the will of God, which is not wrong, that we try to pray for God's sovereign will. But brothers and sisters, you can't know God's sovereign will. So don't pray for God's sovereign will, because you know what? Is God's sovereign will going to happen, yes or no? Yes. All the time? Yes. It's always going to happen. You don't need to pray for that. What you need to pray for is that you would obey God's revealed will. So ask God. So when, when somebody's sick, I will ask God to heal them. And I don't just say, oh God, if it's your will, will heal them. I'm like, no, no, Lord, I want you to heal that person. Please heal her. Please heal him. Please. I'm asking you, Lord, please. And can God say no to me, yes or no? Yeah, he can. And if he does, I got to trust him. And I will trust him. But we can ask God for what we want. He's our father. Let him say no. We don't have to filter and guess what his sovereign will is. Let him do that. Just come to him with your honesty and your desires according to what you know in terms of what he's revealed in the Bible and just pray your heart. Ask God for things. So turn to God, complain to God, ask God for what you want. And lastly, trust God. Look at verses five and six. But I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. Now notice he's saying this before God has answered the prayer. He's still in prayer mode. He still he asked for restoration. He hasn't received that restoration yet. And yet he's already doing what? He's trusting God. God's going to be faithful. This is dark and it's hard and my life is heavy and I need God's help. But God is going to come through. At some point, he's going to come through. I trust him. So there is a summary of how you lament to God. Turn to God, complain to God, ask God for help, and then trust God for goodness. If you want to look at the darkest lament in the whole Bible that actually doesn't end with any kind of, ends with a little, little glimmer of bright light, it's Psalm 88. It might be worth you uh, reflecting on Psalm 88 as a, as a lament and um, thinking and meditating on that passage. Just a wonderful gift of the Lord to give us Psalm 88. Okay, so we want to lament and mourn. Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 4, blessed are those who mourn for they will be, any of you guys know that? Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. That's right. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So brothers and sisters, it's appropriate for us to mourn. It's appropriate for us to lament and to cry out to God. And then lastly, we need to act. We need to act. There are several actions here in terms of change. The first action is to um, express support and care for and opening up of doors for victims and survivors and advocates and to invite to pray for them, to support them, to care for them, to reach out to them, and to make sure that they are walking steadily along with the Lord and we're doing all that we can to help them, okay? So that's the first thing. If we're going to act, we act on behalf of those who have suffered under the abuse. But then we also have other actions that we need to think about. Do we stay in the convention or do we leave the convention as a church? That's something worth thinking about. Do we decide to implement our, um, uh, the other actions, we need to decide to, which strategy should we implement? I think one of the actions we need to take as a Southern Baptist a church in friendly cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention is send our messengers this year to vote, to speak and vote. And so we are allowed, I think, six messengers this year. 
eight messengers this year. So we already voted on those eight messengers and we have some alternates as well. But let's go to the meeting. Let's, there is going to be a long discussion on this and what actions we're gonna take as a convention. So let's attend it, pray for it, let's vote uh, on it. And then uh, the other thing I'd say is let's speak. Keep speaking, even if you're not at the convention, keep talking about it. Talk about it in this church, talk about it with the pastors, talk about it with other Christians, talk about it online, um, write about it. Just keep speaking the truth in love. Let me read to you Proverbs 31, and I hope all of you will continue. You guys do this so well, but let me encourage you to keep doing Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. So this is right before the Proverbs 31 woman that begins in verse 10. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Here's a good uh, call for all of you in terms of action, what to act. Speak up for those who have no voice, for, ju for the justice of all who are dispossessed. Speak up, judge righteously, and defend the cause of the oppressed and needy. What's the main command there? Speak up. Speak up. But my words don't do anything. Wrong. Your words do something. It seems like words don't do anything because you don't see the immediate fruit and effect. But words always change the situation. They always put a ripple in the water of some sort. So keep speaking up. Keep speaking the truth in love. And then lastly, pray to the Lord. And we'll, we'll, we'll spend some time praying as well. But we should be praying for the survivors, for those who are currently abused right now, who have no channel of help. We should be praying for churches. We should be praying for pastors. We should be praying for, for faithful congregationalism and faithful accountability. We should be praying for the convention and the decisions. We should be praying for wisdom for our church and other churches that are all processing this um, sexual abuse report. All right. Let me close this time in prayer with a brief prayer, and then we'll go to, to Q&A. Father, help us to take every thought captive to Christ. Help us to channel our emotions in uh, the right directions. Righteous anger, grief, lament, tears, pain, sympathy, empathy, um, resolve, angst. Lord, help us to do all of these things in godly ways that love you, that love our neighbors as ourselves, that love one another as Christ loved the church. Give us wisdom and may your spirit and word guide us in these days and even in this conversation. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, um, pastors, be on standby so that you guys could chime in as often as you desire. Um, let's go to questions. It doesn't only have to be questions, comments, concerns. I do want to stay here briefly because um, we are biblical complementarians. We have an open mic here. We let men and women speak. Um, but just like it says in 1 Corinthians 14 that, um, you know, men and women might prophesy, but then there are those who judge the prophets. So pastors are responsible here to make sure that if things are said that are out of line biblically, I know we're processing, so we might say some wrong things, but we might need to, I just want to keep the pastors on alert here that we might need to just correct some things that are said. I don't want you to be overly careful. I mean, I want you to be careful, but I don't want you to be so scared that you can't say what you're thinking. But I just want to let the pastors know that we have a responsibility to, to weigh what is being said to make sure that the congregation has, has a good way forward as we process this difficult thing out loud together. Okay? So that being said, you could share a comment, thought, how's this landing on you, questions, 
Um, I have four categories of questions. Thank you for all of you guys who sent questions. Uh, the categories are, how do we respond to the report? There were some questions along that line. There are questions for pastors in terms of the pastor's leadership and accountability and safeguards. There's questions for BBC. There's questions for our cooperation as a church with the convention. And then there's just questions in general for the SBC as a, as a whole. So those are some categories. I have a bunch of questions here. So if you guys don't have anything to say, maybe I'll just pick a few of these, answer them, and then we'll go to prayer. But anyone who wants to share? Heber? Okay, microphone. Do we have a microphone runner? It's not on yet. Chris, can you close the door? You can close the door now just because it's... I don't know if anyone else is going to trickle in. It's not on? Is the power on? Do we have another mic? Where's the other mic? DP, you can also give me the headset if we want to, if we need to move this. Go ahead, Heber. Testing. Peter, you want to run this mic to Heber? Probably getting ahead of myself, but uh, are these executive committee members still in holding positions? Yeah, you guys might need to come up here to ask the question at least for now until they figure it out. So um, the question is are the executive, no, they've all resigned. So everyone who is involved, and by the way, so we have like 86 trustees in the executive committee. Um, then we have 26 on staff. And then there's like a senior staff. And so it was a handful of people. It wasn't even all 26. It was a handful of people among the senior staff and, and then a few uh, legal counsels who were involved. So all of those who are involved are either, either resigned before this report even came out or um, retired. So yeah, none of them are, are currently on staff. Do we have another mic working or no? Okay. Who else has a comment, question, thought? That's a good question. Hello. Okay, back to Hubert. <laughs> Are there term limits to the executive committee? Not to the staff. There are to the trustees. Is there a resolution to make turn limits to no. avoid something like this? No, there's not. That's how it is with like with the presidents of of the of all the entities, seminaries, ERLC, it's uh, the staff. But you could fire them, the trustees. So uh, we have Peter's a trustee for Gateway. How many trustees are at the seminary, Gateway Seminary? Uh, Thirty something. Thirty-seven, 34? and then Ross is a trustee at Lifeway. Faithful trustee at Lifeway, um, and so they, they the trustees can can um, they can hold the president accountable of the entity, and then the president is holding the rest of the staff accountable. 
So there are accountability structures in place. So it's not like he could never get fired. Get fired, I don't know when, but there's processes among the trustees. But the trustees have term limits. Grace? Um, what are the legal ramifications of a report like this? Are the people in question like going to be prosecuted? Or um, is this just merely a report? Can they be prosecuted? So there's two layers to this. There's actually the, the predators who were um, credibly, or there's credible evidence of their um, their, their crime, and then there's the executive committee who mishandled the reports. On the mishandling of the report, I don't know if there's any legal thing that, that they Test. can do um, with that. On the, because I, I think the, the more immediate one would be the actual predator who was doing the sexual abuse. But even there, 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 there could also, like, there could be the past the, was it, statute of limitations? There could be things that pass that, and also there could be, like, not enough, because, um, because, one of the things that, one of their excuses was like, we can't say something about, like if, if God forbid one of us on staff or any of us pastors abused someone here and then went to another church. If we just started naming that person to the other place, that person, they could sue us for saying that if it doesn't go to court or things like that. So there are, there are, there are certain legal liabilities for like saying, hey, that person abused someone in our church. But there are ways you could go through a third party where they could establish enough credible evidence, even if they never get tried to be able to say, hey, this, per this third party group did an investigation with all the witnesses, there's enough credible evidence to say that you should be, be wary of this person. So, so even then, like, are they gonna get prosecuted? No, but you can still, so even that, that's kind of the, the tricky part. Like, I mean, most people who, who abuse don't get away with it and never get prosecuted, so. John, you're gonna say something? Yeah, uh, what, one helpful way to think about kind of what the executive committee of the SPC did with that handful is that their operating principle was uh, whether or not they were legally liable to do something, rather than whether or not it was the right thing to do, right? Uh, so they were trying to make sure that they were covering their tracks legally uh, for the sake of kind of protecting the institution more than out of concern for the people that were actually abused, right? Uh, so it's not necessarily that they did anything illegal per se, right? Uh, the predators certainly did something illegal, right? Uh, they weren't actively like, perpetuating something in like a direct sense or enabling someone as much as when the uh, when the victims were asking the executive committee to publicize certain information or to even inform churches of kind of and the and the members of SBC churches about the dangers of these predators they refused to take action on that yeah so yeah the situation over and over is like if someone got abused and they found out like man my abuser is now at that church they're like I don't want anyone else to get hurt so they're trying to find ways to limit that abuser from hurting anyone else, which is, of course, the right impulse. And then they bring it to the executive committee and they're like, well, we can't do anything about it, you know. Any other questions? No, thank you. No questions for me? Should I just go through the, okay. Royce, anyone else after Royce? I just wanna, let me just, I don't, I don't wanna, cause this could go really long, it's a heavy topic, so let me just, See, if there are any other questions or comments anyone wants to say here. If not, I'm just going to go through the list. Anyone else besides Royce? Okay. In the back. And then Tina. And then who else? 
Anyone else? So those are the three? Anyone else? Okay, Daniel and Sam. Okay, I got five. All right, go to Russ. Um, how would you counsel someone who has been abused to come forward? And secondly, how would you counsel an abuser who is thinking about confessing and coming forward? How, how would you counsel to, them to go about that? Well, someone who's abused, there's just so many possible factors in what their situation, and you have to weigh all of that to their safety, right? So if they're still living in the home, like if they, yeah, so you, you gotta, there's just a lot of ways. So the, the, the general principle is that you want, you want to protect the person, the abused, and then you want to eventually uh, be able to confront the abuser and hold that person rightly accountable. The second question was about the abuser who's thinking about confessing, and they're asking me that they're thinking about confessing? I don't understand that part. Yeah, like... Because if they're telling me, aren't they confessing to me, or...? Or, um... Like, they've come forward. Yeah, like, or, or at least, like, their their conscience is seared. They're, like, on the, on, like, the edge of, like, should I confess or should I not? Are like, they telling me that? No. I mean, like, they're just, like, like, well, like if, if there's yeah, if there's someone, speaking, yeah, like, generally oh, man, speaking, I, yeah. I abuse someone. I would encourage them to confess. Like, to, yeah, you want a clear conscience. You don't want to continue to sear your conscience. So um, it says in Psalm 32 with David, um, what did Psalm 32 say? When he, he kept his sin in and his bones. Turn here. Psalm 32. Um, when I kept silent, Psalm 32, 3, when I kept silent, this is him covering his sin, hiding his sin. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So I would certainly encourage them to do that. John? Yeah, I mean, First John 1 also touches on the same idea uh, in chapter 1, verse 6. It says, if, if we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And verse 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So one is that um, consistent Christianity means that you're going to confess your sin, right? Um, number two would be that uh, true confession involves accepting all consequences of sin. Right. You're not um, trying to control those consequences. Yeah, that's right. And and actually giving those things up. The third thing would be that I, I can see a category in which we would have repentant abusers in our church. Right? In which case, we want to be walking with them and sharing life with them. But uh, out of love for them and for the love of other members around them, that dynamic is going to look different. Right? Um, and so there, there's a really helpful book called The Creaking Under the Stairs by Mez McConnell where he talks about his own physical and sexual abuse uh, in his own testimony, he talked about some situations. And then at the end, there's Q&As with, with, with an actual repentant sexual abuser, right? Uh, and, and a victim of sexual abuse that read the whole book and that Q&A with that abuser. And one thing that was really clear was that the abuser who was repentant understood that as a result of his sin, that there would be certain parameters that he would follow 
attending the church and being a member there, uh, that would be more restrictive than with other members. And he was happy to do that um, because he understood that that was safety for himself as well as for uh, the people that he was in fellowship with. And some of you have heard me say, say things like that in uh, membership interviews as we've talked about these things in terms of the parameters thing. Yeah, that's what I wanted to mention. The fact that at our church, um, we want to make our church a safe place to confess sin, but also to ask questions like what you talked about, PJ, right now about interview questions. When someone is coming in, we ask a particular question around this topic, which gives them opportunity to speak up so that pastors can be aware so that we don't put them in a position that makes them vulnerable. Yeah, we're trying to open the door and encourage confession uh, and let them know that we wanna um, exercise grace and discernment. Okay, and discretion. So Tina and then, can you remind me your name again? Wendy. Wendy, that's right, we had lunch last week. You had a guest lunch, thank you Wendy. Okay, uh, Tina. Um, so you know the um, people who were abusing and stuff and how they moved from another church and all that? My question is, why didn't they get per, like prosecuted? They did they repent or I just yeah. yeah, that's a good question. I I don't know. I, either they didn't report it in time because some of these people had been for like for a long time. Sometimes the survivors don't report it until they see the person somewhere else, and then they're triggered to say they want to protect someone. So that could be past the time limit. I don't know exactly why. It's I mean there are. There, what, I don't know how many pages of reports. So the actual report of the list of abusers who have gone from church to church and all their articles, that's all public. So you can see list. Do you know how many are on that yeah. list? Yeah. So, so here's the irony is that the victims asked the SBC to c collect a database of, of offenders that they knew about and to publicize that list for the safety of churches so that you could uh, search someone's name and, and if they were actually convicted of something, you could see it. Uh, they said that it wasn't possible. Uh, that was the response of the leaders. But on the back end, they actually had their own list uh, that they were keeping and updating regularly. So I would say a good majority of the of the names on that list, at least when I scrolled, I would say around maybe somewhere between 45 to 60 percent of the names are registered sex offenders, uh, like currently. Um, and so they were prosecuted. Other people are outside the statute of limitations. Yeah. Okay. Wendy. Um, Sorry. And then Sam Chun over here. Right. Go to Wendy. Is there anything we can do for the people who've been abused? Like, is there anything that, like, any type of care that we can give them? In, in the like in the specific case with with those with those who are mentioned here on the report. Yeah. Um. I think I mean if you could reach out to them, maybe. I mean, yeah, I mean, you surely could on your own. Yeah, it says in Second Thessalonians 1, 2, that the prayer that we would, that God would fulfill every desire for good. So if you have a desire to do something good for them, you certainly can reach out to them. I mean, I've, I've um, messaged or tweeted at one, of, one or two of them just thanking them. As I've been reading this report, just thanking them for how heroic they've been to withstand all this resistance and stonewalling and being dismissed and how she just kept on saying what was true until it broke through and I just told her like you are heroic like you are a hero to me like in terms of just the perseverance so I mean yeah can we do things for them you can you can reach out to them and, and find ways of doing things like that I think it's very important uh, that we think about that even in our own church with just being aware of and well, if you remember here we've typically during the membership interview asked and made sure that you had a, a safe space to, to let 
us know if there's any kind of tra traumatic situations that we can get support and help for the members of our church. So I try to point members in different directions when that's been the case. Um, oh, is it? Okay, John. Yeah, uh, I would say I would say a couple things. The first thing would be to know that statistically one in three women all have been abused in the past. So this isn't an uncommon thing. So almost certainly there are people in this room that have experienced abuse. Um, and so knowing the ubiquity of it or kind of just how universal that experience can be uh, is important for us to know. Um, the second thing would be that um, sometimes with abuse cases, like when we sniff it, we, we feel such a burden for the injustice that we get really proactive in trying to probe into that. And, and I would actually encourage the opposite response. Uh, what you probably want to be is more open-handed and just a good listener, right? Um, and, and try to ask thoughtful, open-ended questions that don't make people feel like they need to have a watershed moment right then and there, but just knowing that you're a safe person that they could talk to and let them grow in their comfort with you as they start to open up with things. Um, yeah, and the third thing is if someone does claim to, that something tragic had happened, right, or, or when, especially with these SBC survivors, um, have a disposition that wants to believe them and genuinely inquire about these things. It doesn't mean that there aren't going to be people that are ill-intended, right? Um, but I, I think there's a lot of harm that can happen from making, uh, like, judgments yourself on, on individuals. So even, even with the report, part of what was so heartbreaking was that it, it wasn't that people were saying that these, that, that, um, that they were being wrongfully accused. They were against even an inquiry to figure out whether or not truth was there or not, right? Uh, they were trying to prevent an investigation to expose what actually was the case, which is a pretty clear indicator of where they were, right? Uh, and, and so in Nashville, I remember going up to one of the survivors and just hugging her and just crying with her, you know, like, it, it's just tragic what happened. And, and so have a disposition that leans in to want to inquire more. Yeah. Sam? Okay. okay. Was there someone after Sam? It was Daniel, last one. Uh, I submitted a question, so I don't know if you'll get to it. Should I still ask? Just ask it, yeah. Okay, yeah. So one time to get to all the questions people Yeah. Uh, what are, I guess, your thoughts or the pastor's thoughts on churches that are thinking through whether to, to not be a part of the Is SBC? Yeah, from the SBC. What's your guys' thoughts on that, and where is that in relation to what our church is. I also have a second question, if we have time for it. Sure, yeah, we can go to the second one after. Um, so on that first one, um, I haven't talked to Ben about it. John and I have had a few conversations about it. Peter and I have not talked about it a little bit, maybe. Um, but my general, my, my personal take on it would be, um, so I, I don't think the way it looks, like it, I don't wanna judge first by the way it looks publicly. Not that that's not a concern. I, I wanna really be more about the substance of it. Like, are we guilty? And is this, is, is it, a, if we are, then let's deal with that. If we're not, let's deal with that. But like how it looks on the outside is a secondary or tertiary concern for me. So that's the first thing. Um, the, 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 the reasons to pull out would be, if they don't, in, in my view, would be if they don't, if they don't respond to this abuse uh, report rightly, then that would be one. Um, number two, if it became such an, uh, a hindrance to our evangelism, which again, I just don't, I don't see that becoming a case, at least at this point, but it could. 
So if a bunch of members are sharing, like, oh yeah, I shared my gospel, with, uh, the gospel with a neighbor, and then they said, uh, yeah, well, what about this? Because even then, to me, that becomes an opportunity to share the gospel again. Like, yeah, hey, they're sinners, and we're sinners, and you can even go into some of the details of the situation and just say, this is why we need a savior, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, and invite them to join us in being forgiven of our sins and being changed by Christ, by His grace. So I don't see it hindering um, personal evangelism and public witness in that regard. And then I think the other problem would be the, the, the confidence of the members of the church in the convention, which is why we're having a conversation like this. So we want, we want to uh, make sure you know that we have an open door for this conversation, not just on a Sunday night, but if you have concerns about that, we can, we can talk about it and work through those conversations. Because we're a congregational church, if the majority of our church thinks we should disassociate, then that might end up happening. But um, so the, 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 the three categories are um, one, is it right or wrong to associate or disassociate, disassociate? So if it's wrong to stay in, then we just need to go out. If it's, if it's acceptable to stay in, then the question in my mind is public witness and personal confidence of our church family in staying in. Um, now, on the situation, there's two other factors. One is um, the fact that this report was, was voted on by us, and again, I told you John and I were there, it was overwhelming. It wasn't even close. And the SBC is divided about a lot of things right now. They're not divided about making sure that we implement effective changes. So I don't even see the direct, I don't, like I almost think there's a zero, like not zero, there's like less than a 5% chance that, the, that they say, you know what, there's a report, but let's just continue with what's been going on. Like, I don't know how anyone will say that. Like, so in my mind, they're going to make actions in the right direction and they certainly have the right desire. Um, so I'm, I'm not doubting that confidence at all, really regardless of who becomes president. In, in this case, and, and really the d divided groups in the SBC. So I'm confident in that regard, but if they made the wrong decision, then we would have a serious conversation here what we what we should do. The second thing is we do have missionaries from our church who are overseas, and um, they need to have an SBC home church as they stay on the field. Now, we could leave the convention just to, like, go to one of our SBC sister churches here and be like, hey, can those missionaries claim you as their home church? So there, it's not like a deal breaker. We could find a way to to make sure that our missionaries on the field are connected to a church. But that's just another thing that we are their church. So um, keeping that connection is ideal. Your second question? Because you're the last person here, Daniel. Okay. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. I think, uh, yeah, actually my second question kind of ties into that. I think, or I guess something I'm processing is I think my in, one of my initial kind of like reaction or feel to it was like, oh, all these higher ups that very in a very like abominable way seems to like pressing down on this coming out. I think my default was to think of like, oh, they're not saved. Like not as like a thoughtful like thinking through it, but my initial gut response was kind of like that. So I guess my question is, how are you thinking about that in regards to the people who are like in a very heinous way? Maybe. I think you mentioned earlier what's it, a lot of it doesn't seem like a very intentional like, you know. But for those who are more guilty, at what point or how are you thinking about them in relation to like whether they're saved or not? Because I know like, for example, an example of someone who I think a lot of people are thinking, yeah, he probably wasn't actually a Christian was when Ravi had that whole thing come out. So, in this situation, what is the pastor's thoughts? on, yeah, like the executive committee or people who may be a part of that. So um, Hebrews 6 says, for it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. 
So it says here that it's impossible to endure to repentance. I think the key word is repentance. God will never turn away someone who repents, ever, who genuinely repents and trusts in Jesus. He will never, ever turn them away. So the question really is, are they repentant? Right? That's, that's the key question. With, and there's two categories of people in my mind from this report. There's the one on the first one who had an alleged sexual, sexual assault situation who has been very public with his response, which has not shown in my mind clear repentance, very questionable, like obviously questionable repentance. And if you want more details on that, happy to talk about that later because we need to go to prayer time. But in that person, I'm like, I mean, in one sense, it almost doesn't matter what I think. So that, that's maybe the bottom line is um, obviously God knows. I pray for the person's repentance. And what's most important, this is important for us BBCers to know, is what's most important is their local churches and their local churches holding that person accountable. So it uh, doesn't matter what I think. It does matter what that church family thinks. And that church family has a responsibility before God, and they will answer to God for how they hold those leaders accountable. Right? So, um, so I think it's important. So I don't know. There's one where, again, the public statement is just highly questionable. I'm just like, man, that is the worst possible pu public response in terms of indications of repentance. Um, so there's that. And then on the other ones, yeah, I just I don't know. Um, I don't know about them specifically, and I don't know the details. I read this report. It's not going into their lives and their response to it. John, you want to say something briefly? I mean, I, I think one thing I want to say is that when, when the Bible, even when we excommunicate someone for unrepentant sin, we're not making a clear statement on their eternal destiny. We're trying to make really clear that that sin that they're unrepentant about and following Jesus don't mix together. Right, so we're removing a positive affirmation that that person is a Christian, right? And because we're moving them outside, we're making really clear First Corinthians five: God judges outsiders, right? So, so we're making we're removing a positive statement. We're saying, listen, we're not sure anymore. The second thing is that uh, there are going to be Christians that uh, will sin in grievous ways, and even though Christ may forgive them, they should not be given that type of authority again. Right. Uh, Leadership. Yeah. So, so just to be clear, you could be a repentant Christian and lose any credibility before God to have that type of position. Right. That's why one of the qualifications of being an elder is to be respectable. Right. Um, I, I don't think that means that someone can't follow Jesus and have grievous error. It means that uh, there actually is importance with reputation in leadership about being a consistently honorable person. Right? And so we could look at these people, and even if they were to come forward and say, hey, we made honest mistakes here, we can acknowledge that and have a disposition to want to forgive while not giving them any more authority again. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, uh, one thing I want to say here before we go to prayer is one of, the, one of the key questions is, like, what are the safeguards for the pastors? What about how do we handle a pastor accusation, things along that line? First Timothy 5, 17 through 19 talks about how to receive accusations against pastors. It says, um, actually, let me just turn there. And then just very specifically on our church, what, what, um, what would happen here. First Timothy 5.19 says, don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. Public, publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. So it says, don't accept an accusation against an elder that, unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. That does not mean, okay, let me just give a few clarifying thoughts here. That does not mean that um, let's say a child um, is accusing uh, or saying to you that, hey, a leader, a pastor has, um, has abused me in this way. You just call the police. That's not to say that you've made the judgment, you accept the accusation, it's true. You don't know if it's true, but that's not on your, that's not your, um, 
jurisdiction to investigate that. So it says two or three witnesses. What, it, what that's referring to is having a basis for saying that it's actually true. To say, okay, this person made an accusation about Pastor PJ, and yes, we accept that that is true. He did sin in that way. You don't accept that without two or three witnesses. In other words, a, a, a right, uh, you know, right investigation. So that's not to say that you don't. Um, so if, if a child reports or if a child is c uh, complaining, you know, about uh, a pastor, we can go directly to the police and let them investigate and do that, or th third-party guideposts. We can do things like that, and th that's not to say that we think that the pastor is guilty. But so we're not accepting an accusation. We're just, hey, let, let's let that due diligence play out. But um, until it's until it's verified. Again, we're not saying that the person is guilty, but we, we, we're not going to say, well, let's not do anything. Let's just not assume that until we have two or three witnesses to the, to the, um, to the crime. That's not what we're doing, okay? So does that make sense? So we're not um, – we want to hold the pastors accountable. If there, is a, a, um, if there is a complaint or something worth reporting, then you report it. Um, that, but that doesn't mean as a church or as individuals we should assume guilt. We should just let the process play out. And then if it is guilt, then we just follow with this. We publicly rebuke those who sin, remove them from office, and do whatever is appropriate in terms of church accountability, church discipline, and the like. Okay? So um, that's what should happen there. Just, again, one of the things you want, you want to be seeing in your own lives and especially in the pastor's lives is that we are confessing sins to God and to each other, um, to the fellow pastors, to um, other members of the church, not just pastors. Pastors should not only be confessing sins to pastors. They should have other brothers and sisters inside the church um, that they're appropriately um, open to not controlling the information, but just volunteering that to, to make sure that, they're, that they are growing in Christ and in a community of grace. And so we hope to cultivate that here. Um, that doesn't mean, uh, that doesn't mean it, it can't go away. If it exists today, that doesn't mean it can't go away a year from now. We can start hiding sin, so we, don't, we need to constantly be doing that as a church family. Uh, one of the members used to ask me fairly regularly who holds me accountable Right, uh, asking that regularly, who's holding you accountable, PJ? And we kind of joke about that, but that's a good question for uh, members to know. So even if you're not the accountability partner for Ben or John or Peter in the in the day to day, I think it's a, it's a totally appropriate for you to be like, hey, who are the brothers that um, hold you accountable? And if you're married, um, does your wife know all the necessary information to hold you accountable? So those are those are not only okay questions; those are good questions to ask. And pastors like me and Ben and John and Peter should not be offended by that question. That's not a bad question. I don't have to take that as like, oh, you're suspecting me. Like, no, it's good. I, I should be held accountable. We, we want to – we want to, um, to. it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, to him who thinks he stands, let him take heed lest he fall. As soon as you just think you got it and you could think you could stand and you're not taking heed and you're open to the accountability and the warnings, then um, you need to take heed because you're about to fall in pride. Okay, so it's it's not it's not it's not wrong for you guys to ask us these things so that you make sure that we're growing. As we keep asking you guys to make sure you're growing in Christ and fighting sin in your own life. Okay, um, we're gonna spend some time in prayer here. Um, maybe do, do we have a few people who would like to lead us in a prayer? I'm gonna read Psalm 10 and we're gonna pray. If not, I'm just gonna call on a few people to lead us in praying. Anyone would like to pray for uh, our church, for our leaders?